We're looking at tonight, we're looking at Romans 4 and verses 6 to 8. David says the same thing when he speaks of the right of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Let's remind ourselves what Paul's doing here in Romans 4. Uh, he's carefully arguing the case that the only way to be saved, that is to have a right relationship uh, with God uh, so that you'll be accepted and not condemned on the last day, is for God to give you that right relationship. We can't do it. We can't uh, be good enough and we can't do anything that will mean that our sins are forgiven. God must do it. And we speak of justification by Christ through faith. Justification by Christ through faith. And he's wanting to show that this is not a novelty, that this has been the same all the way through. Now, sometimes when you're in the Bible, you're, uh, you're kind of going through at quite a, a rapid rate, like one of the presenters of Top Gear in a Ferrari going through a particular part. And other times you're going down into the low gears as though you're in a, in a, a caterpillar uh, tractor and you're going very, very slowly through. And we're in that kind of uh, passage right now. We're going really slow because it's so, so important. And Paul's painstaking in his argument. And the reason that it's so important for us to get it you know, right in here is that we are breathing an atmosphere in the world around us all the time that's saying, you get what you deserve. You work for something, and if you work hard enough, you get the reward for what you have done. And basically, the whole world operates to various modifications of the law of karma. You know, uh, your bad acts come, and they boomerang uh, against you eventually. They catch up with you. Or your good deeds are bound to be rewarded. Even being sincere enough, that's bound to be something which is credit worthy. And because we live in a world where everybody thinks like that, and indeed because it's the default position of our own hearts, we really, really need to get it. And Paul really, really needs to make it plain to us. And so he goes slow and he brings different uh, parts of the Old Testament to bear to prove and to prove again his argument that this has always been the way. It's not new. This is how all the saints in the Old Testament were saved. It's a consistent teaching of the whole of the Bible. They weren't saved by works in the Old Testament and suddenly saved by grace in the New. That's not the meaning uh, of the, the newness of the, of the New Covenant. It's something that has been revealed in Christ. All the old saints were saved by faith, looking forward to that which had yet to come. God gave them a goodness which they did not have themselves. And the technical language for that, which is important, is imputed righteousness. Imputed righteousness. Or credited righteousness. And that's really important when we're talking with our Roman Catholic friends because their doctrine teaches an infused righteousness. So that you're saved, yes, faith comes into it, but also your works, your own works, are part of the equation. And the whole uh, contention 
at the Reformation is that that is not what the Bible teaches. And if it was, we would never know for sure that we were saved, because you can never know if your bit, your contribution is enough. Justification by Christ through faith. Now, Paul moves to David for a moment. He's been considering Abraham, and now he moves to David, and he's going to return to Abraham uh, immediately after uh, verse 8. And so, why does he mention David? Why is David brought in here, only to be left uh, so quickly? Uh, well, there are, there are two reasons for this, and the one is a very uh, Jewish reason, and that is that in the Old Testament, uh, a matter had to be settled by from the mouth of two or more witnesses. One witness is not enough. And so Abraham, Father Abraham, is called to witness, and now David is the next witness to take the stand. And from the mouths of these two witnesses, what Paul is asserting, that this is a whole Bible doctrine, will be uh, proven. But the other reason, of course, is that David, like Abraham, is a great hero. He's a Bible hero. Uh, it's still the case, isn't it? Uh, from Sunday school right through, we, we love David. He's a great guy uh, at a whole lot of different levels. Obviously, he's the greatest king that Israel had. Um, he's also uh, a hero in the sense that he's the man or he's the boy that God brought from looking after the sheep uh, to the throne of Israel. So he's brought up from the working classes. He's a man of the soil. He's representative of those who earn their bread by the, by the, the sweat of their brow. He's also a poet. He is the, the one who will write the, uh, the bulk of the, the Psalms in, in our Bibles. And so uh, he's somebody that is revered to, re revered rather by the people, but also and significantly for Paul's argument here in Romans 4, he was not only a great king, a great hero, he was a great sinner. He was a great sinner. He sinned grievously. He sinned in a very obvious way. He broke unclean of the commandments. And yet, he can speak of the joy of forgiveness. If this is true of David. Then it is true for us all. So, Paul calls witness number two, King David. And determines through David's witness in Psalm 32, three things. You cannot work, you cannot work to remove your sins. Second, God can remove your sins. Three, when God removes your sins, he removes them so that they will never appear again. <coughs> you cannot work to remove your sins. I wonder if you noticed a kind of unexpected shift in Paul's argument uh, when he moves on to, to David, when he brings in this verse from, from Psalm 32. Uh, he's been speaking of God <clears throat> imputing righteousness or crediting righteousness. You know that, that um, bookkeeping book term, uh, the righteousness of God is put to the account headed uh, Ivor MacDonald, headed whatever, your name. Uh, it's credited to us. 
imputed righteousness, the goodness of God, lived out in the form we need it, in human form, in Christ, credited to our account. He's been speaking about that in uh, Abraham's case. And it seems as though he's going to continue to talk about imputed righteousness, imputed goodness in David's case, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from his works. So we're kind of tuned in to that language, counts righteousness apart from his works. But then, uh, to our surprise, he goes on to speak of the, not the imputation of righteousness, but the forgiveness of sins, or we could say the remission of sins. Speaks of the fact that uh, he didn't have sin imputed to him or put to his account. So this is kind of interesting, isn't it? He started off saying that he's going to be talking about the imputation or the crediting of righteousness, but actually David's on about the remission of sins. John Murray, uh, (coughs) the commentator, uh, points out that this is significant because it underlines that the two sides of justification are both done 100% by God. What are the two sides of justification? Well, negatively, God forgives our sins, and positively, he gives us a righteousness that we don't have. Now, uh, as I said earlier, the Reformation dispute is, does our justification come all from God, or do we contribute part of our righteousness? Well, Murray says, justification has two sides. So Paul can speak about imputing righteousness and go on to talk about forgiving sins. Now, clearly, forgiving sins is not something we do. God does it, and he's going to show that. Therefore, the flip side, imputing righteousness, must also be something God does completely. It's all from him. God does both of these. Our standing before God uh, is not because of our own goodness. It is because God has contributed it all, just as, on the flip side, he does everything to remit our sins, to forgive our sins. Another commentator, James Boyce, points out another advantage of the fact that Paul here is going to talk about uh, the not crediting of our sins or our transgressions. And it's an interesting point. He says that today in modern society, uh, if you go out and and, uh, speak to, to people who are not Christians, there's very few folks out there like Martin Luther, who are desperate to, to find a righteousness that will fit them from God. Awakened by the Holy Spirit, they may come to that point. But you will find plenty of people who are deeply troubled by the fact that they have a list of transgressions against their account. And so this is really, uh, this is kind of uh, touching where, where people are at very very uh, really transgressions of course is a wonderful word because it communicates very clearly what's going on Uh, it's going off the path it's wandering away it's going over a boundary transgressing a boundary God gives us his law and he sets up boundaries for us he tells us that one of the boundaries is don't worship other gods don't worship the one true God in ways which are degraded or uh, impure. 
honor his name. Keep uh, one day of the week holy to the Lord. Uh, be uh, somebody who honors uh, your parents. Preserve life rather than harm life. Be pure. Uh, do not steal. Don't lie. Don't desire the things which aren't your own. Uh, he gives us these boundary lines. And we know when we transgress them, when we go over the lines. And we feel bad about it. We have a guilt. We have a burden. Because we have transgressed the, the, the lines that God has, has laid down for right and good living. And David was somebody who knew what it was to feel a, a, a deep sense of guilt because he had transgressed the boundaries of God. Uh, he was a believer, of course, who walked blindfold into a minefield of temptation. And it all begins with uh, David not being in the place of duty. He, uh, in, at the time when kings go to war, the scripture tells us, David's not with the troops. Instead, he's, uh, he's indulging himself uh, in the luxury of the palace. And uh, it's there that uh, he meets with temptation in the form of the sight of a bathing female. And when uh, he's had his night of passion, there's a pregnancy results, and he is pulled further into to sin, first of all, in seeking to deceive a man more honorable than he is, then arranging his death. And then it seems there's a time when David tries to tough it out. He refuses to acknowledge his guilt. And he's candid in Psalm 32 as he reflects on that time. And his bones were aching. Inwardly, he's a tortured individual. Because he has bottled up this sin and he will not confess it. And God sends the prophet Nathan to David. And God gets under uh, the radar, as it were, by Nathan's parable of the, the, the rich man who seizes the only lamb belonging to this poor shepherd in order to meet his own uh, requirements. David's outrage, and Nathan condemns David. You are the man. So we read in Scripture of David's open grief, uh, after the baby becomes sick and eventually dies. But Psalm 32 is a descriptive psalm of the, the submerged pain that uh, was harrowing his spirit. Now, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy on me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Now isn't that such a, such a powerful word picture of the, the guilt that, that we feel when we've done wrong things and, and people are all around us, going up and down our streets, uh, many of them carrying intense senses of, of guilt over things which they've done in their past which loom large in their conscience. And they're continually denying them. And they're, they're going through something of this, uh, the sense of being crushed by guilt. Perhaps, it, again, like David, is the, the pain of a, a sexual encounter. Or a lie from which they profited. No one knows about it, but they know about it. 
or a promotion which they earned because they, they smeared someone's character in order to leapfrog them up the career ladder. Perhaps it's the guilt over an abortion. A woman's racked by uh, torment over that. Now, our modern society responds to many of the senses of guilt by, by saying that, that the guilt itself uh, is, is pathological uh, and that we should deny wrongdoing. Uh, think of the example quoted there of uh, the, the guilt that, that, that many uh, poor girls feel after they have had an abortion. Uh, the, the whole notion that there can be such a thing as post-abortion trauma is, is widely discredited by, by people simply because uh, it would undermine the idea that you have a right to choose, and that there's nothing uh, ethically wrong with deciding to have a termination. Or the guilt that someone may have with the fact that they had a, a homosexual encounter or a lifestyle in the past, uh, denied as uh, a malaise. It's a malignant effect, perhaps, of your puritanical upbringing that you should feel guilty about something which society regards as being quite okay. And people deny the wrongdoing. They try to submerge the guilt. And the individual is not helped in any way by this. And they groan under the, under the pressure of unconfessed sin. The fact remains that no matter how we try to bury sin, there is a guilt that lies there. A deep and deadly struggle going on. And the world is full of people uh, who are plagued by their transgressions. And who are working to separate themselves from their transgressions. And only God can do that. Only God can do that. It's interesting that there is a whole genre of films, of movies, which are based around the idea of redemption. And the redemption is uh, you freeing yourself from the guilt of, of, a, of, a, of a bad past. Uh, one of the best of these is the 1986 film The Mission, and it's set in northeastern Argentina on the border of Paraguay, uh, not all that far from where Marianne, uh, who was a church worker, uh, was brought up. And uh, it's in the 1750s. The Roman Catholic Jesuits have a, a mission to the natives there. Uh, the country's occupied by pro-slavery uh, Portugal. And amongst the slave dealers and mercenaries operating in the area is a man called Rodrigo Mendes. And he's a vicious individual who kills a man in a fit of rage. And although, and this is interesting, he's acquitted by a human court, but he's still plagued by his guilt. And he comes to a priest, and the priest uh, advises him to do penance. And as his penance, uh, Mendes goes about uh, with his armour, his, his, uh, his arms in a, in a ball, a heavy ball of metal, uh, which he drags along with a chain. And some of the most powerful scenes in the film are of Rodrigo Mendes, who's played by Robert Nero, uh, dragging this great burden up a mountain. And of course, like so many of this kind of, of film, they, they wrongly uh, suggest that, that you can actually, by 
by this kind of activity, separate yourself from your guilt. And so there's this scene in the film where one of the natives uh, severs the rope and his burden is released. And that's not true to life. And Shakespeare actually is truer to life when, when Shakespeare's portraying in Macbeth, the play Macbeth, the guilt that racks Lady Macbeth. Uh, remember in, in the play uh, where uh, Duncan uh, is slain by Macbeth, urged on by his wife. Uh, Macbeth gets to the throne. Uh, he's racked by guilt and paranoia. He goes on to more and more tyrannical acts. And Lady Macbeth, who seems to be the stronger character and who encourages him you know, not to be a wimp but go on and, and do the deed. Yet there's this very memorable uh, sleepwalking scene when the submerged guilt in her own life comes to the surface. And there are these uh, wonderful words uh, when she's continually washing her hands. And uh, she's saying to herself, Will all great Neptune's oceans wash this blood clean from my hand? No. This my hand will rather the multitudinous seas incarnadine, making the green one red. That picture, you know, her guilt is so enormous that it's enough to make all the seas, all the oceans red with, with guilt. We cannot work to remove our sin. God can remove our sin. This is the, the blessedness of which David speaks. David reminds us in the psalm of three things that God does uh, with our sin. First of all, uh, he says, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven. Our transgressions are forgiven. And the word forgiven is interesting because it literally is uh, released or, or separated. It means to release something so as to separate us from it. It's a wonderful thought. The ancient peoples had a, a really barbaric way of punishing someone who had been guilty of a murder. If the, the body of the victim could be had, then the body was taken and it was, it was strapped to the back of the individual. And, of course, there's this horrible uh, progression of, of putrefaction and so on. Uh, as the, the, the corpse decayed, so the, the flesh of the, the murderer was attacked until he too uh, succumbed and was killed. And there could be no release. And some of the commentators think that that's the kind of picture that was in Paul's mind when he, sp he speaks in Romans 7. Uh, who can deliver me from this body of death? And of course, under uh, the, the regulations, no one could, but God can separate us from this body of death. He can, he can deliver us. He can release us from our sin. And in the Old Testament, there are these uh, wonderful pictures in the Day of Atonement as to how God will release us from our sin. Uh, on that day, there are two goats which are taken for sacrifice. Um, one is slain, and the other one is taken by the priest, uh, and it has the sins of the people confessed uh, over it. And then the goat is taken by a, a 
servant out into the, the wild and lonely desert where no one goes and is released never to be seen again. The scapegoat. And that's a picture of how God will separate us from our sin. We can't do it. Like the rotting corpse, it's bound to us. The guilt will destroy us. But God does what no one can do. He separates us from our sin. Second thing God does is he covers our sins. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. This is another lovely picture, and it's, it's so different from the, the very close expression that we have of covering up. God's not covering up our sin. That's what we do. We cover up transgression. We try and hide it. We, we paper over sin. And we keep doing it. Think back to um, the, the Watergate uh, affair, you know, when the, uh, Richard Nixon, President of the States, was, was caught up uh, in this uh, the bugging of the, the Democratic Party's uh, conference in the Watergate Hotel. And all the cover-up that went into that. All the denial. Think more recently of the, the Hillsborough affair and the, the guilt that has emerged only now after so much cover-up at so many different levels. Our way of dealing with sin is so often to cover it up. God covers our sin in a very different way. And again, the, the way that God covers our sin is taken from the Day of Atonement. Because on the Day of Atonement is the only time when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, the place where God is figured as dwelling. The, the room within a room within the room. And he comes not alone, but he must only come with blood. The blood of the sacrificed animal. And the high priest comes into the Holy of Holies, and in the Holy of Holies there is the Ark of the Covenant, and the Ark is this, this wooden box inlaid with gold, and there are carved wooden creatures on either side, uh, with wings spread, facing uh, each other, uh, the cherubim. And this is the, the, the sometimes called the Torah, it's called the mercy seat. And within the box, Within the ark are the commandments, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone. So the picture is God is enthroned between the cherubim. He is seated on the mercy seat. What does God see when he looks down? He sees the reminder of his law, which has been broken by his people. Their transgressions, it's a perpetual reminder to him. The high priest comes in with the blood of the sacrificed animal symbolizing the, the life that has been forfeited as a, a penalty. And now with his blood, he takes the blood and he sprinkles it on the cover of the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. And God now looks down and is propitiated. His anger is turned away because of sacrifice. That is how God covers our sin. He doesn't cover up our sin. It is a Judicial act. Justice has been served. It was brought out into the open. But now our sin has been covered. And in our case, Jesus Christ is the sacrifice whose blood covers our sins, hides it from view. 
And then the third blessed thing that's said is that the Lord will not count our sin against us. Not wonderful. He's not going to put it to our account. He'll bear the cost himself. He will not credit it to us. Think of how debts are written off these days. Sometimes national debts are written off. You know, a basket case economy like Greece uh, runs up huge debts and the rest of the EU is nearly crippled uh, by the writing off of national debts like these. Justification means God doesn't enter the sins of those he's saving on their own ledger. What a blessed thought. Happy, Paul, uh, David says, is the person who has no black mark against them. The person against whom God does not credit their transgressions. Happy, happy is the woman who has no negatives put to her account. That's the blessedness of being justified by Christ through faith. And then lastly, what God has done in removing our sin can never be undone. He removes our sins so that they'll never confront us again. will never be reversed. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. That's fantastic. He will never count your sin against you. We don't do that in our personal relations with one another. You know um, what we say very often, or some folks say at least, uh, I'll forgive, but I can't forget. Which is saying, I'm not really going to forgive, and it's going to crop up later on. And sometimes parents, we can be bad at doing that, bringing up past misdemeanors when they've been dealt with already, reminding children of times they've been mischievous or whatever. Or we can do as adults with one another, bringing up things which were aired out in the open and they shouldn't be brought to mind again and we do that. And God says, I won't do that. He's not in the business of bringing back up, dredging back up that which he has released, which he has covered, which he has promised not to credit again to our account. And there are lovely scriptures uh, which I want to read to you, just which remind us of that. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud, and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Isn't that beautiful? You know the way that a, a morning mist will disappear as the sun rises in its intensity? Completely disappears. Isaiah 44, 22. Again from Isaiah, this time 38, verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness, but in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. Micah 7, 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Friends, these are tremendous scriptures. He will never count against us our sin. The sin from which he separated us, which he has covered, which he has promised not to credit against our account. 
they will never rise to condemn us. And sometimes we as individuals can be wrong in dwelling upon sin which God has remitted in Christ. Corrie Ten Boom's got a great uh, addendum to the verse from Micah which speaks about casting our sin into the depths of the sea. She wrote once, uh, God casts our sin into the depths of the sea, then he puts up a sign saying, no fishing. No fishing. No going down and bringing up again the things which God has forgiven. Blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. What a blessing to have our sin dealt with in this way, robustly, uh, with justice, with truth and equity. Happiness more than anything that the world can give us. The best things that the world can give will not give the cleared conscience that we desire. And David knew this blessedness, this happiness. And now, uh, as he recounts it, he's, he addresses uh, the hearer and the listener uh, to the psalm and urges on us to receive this blessing. In Psalm 32, Therefore, he says, Let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. Do you hear what David is saying? He's saying that there is an opportune time to confess your sin. God comes near. And when God comes near, let the godly confess their sin. Make every, uh, take every opportunity that we have while God is near, while your conscience is addressed to unburden your soul before God, who is faithful to forgive. Don't miss the boat. It's true for the unbeliever that there is an opportune time to come to God. True also for the godly, to whom, God, to whom David is speaking. Confess your sin. And then on that day, when the waters of judgment rise, they will not touch us. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this glorious truth. Thank you for the reality in David's life after he had made such a mess of his own personal life and had brought destruction and pain to uh, people around him. Thank you, Lord, that even though uh, there would be many of us today who would have written David off for what he had done, we thank you that you, you did not, that you forgave him. We thank you that he could be sure, even after his atrocious behavior, that you would not credit his sin to his account. Lord, help us to live in that blessed assurance that our sin has also been dealt with that way. And keep us, Lord, we pray, from dredging up the past. Help us to move forward in the sunshine of your love and to live for you with a clear conscience and with a desire to share this gospel with others. For we ask in Jesus' name.